0: Hello and welcome or welcome back to The Technicast, the graduate podcast that celebrates current work being done in the arts and humanities. Technicast is run by Felix Klutzen, Edward Gilson, Julian Klein and me, Polly Hember. We're very excited to bring you our fourth and final installment of our themed mini-series exploring genre, where we've heard so far from Jennifer Doveton on middle-class values in fantasy, on science fiction and the climate crisis from Edward Gilson and Frankie Hallam, So I definitely recommend um, going back and listening to those at some point if you haven't had a chance to already. Today we're weaving together the threads of science fiction and fantasy, where we'll be welcoming Sarah Richardson to the podcast to speak about her work on inclusive satire. Sarah is a PhD researcher in the English and Creative Writing departments at Royal Holloway, University of London, where she is currently writing about inclusive humour and monsters and writing her own satirical novel. You'll get to hear Sarah's introduction to her work and how empathetic storytelling can be used in satire to forge a more optimistic genre for both human and non-human. And then I'll be back at the end speaking with Sarah about her satirical novel
1: and about her writing practice. I hope you enjoy. Important things first. If I can promise you anything, it's that this is an optimistic podcast. No cynicism here, thank you very much. That in mind, Please forgive me for what I'm about to say. The world is in turmoil. The cost of breathing is on the rise. The people in power seem soulless. What are we to do in such times? Get smarter? Be kinder? Help each other out? Well, yeah, absolutely. Do all of those things. But maybe, for your own sake, you should read some satire. Better to laugh than cry, right? As you've probably already guessed, my interest is in satire. To give you a flavour of this interest, I'm going to be introducing the idea of discussing fantastical monsters in satire, discussing them as a device to chart the genre's evolution. And I'll also provide a small introduction to monster theory as well. By monster, I'll be referring to my favourite definition of the word, to Geoffrey Cohen's description, the description of the creature that is the abjected fragment that enables the formation of all kinds of identities. Before we get going, I would also like to let you know that the research I'll be discussing here is practice-based, meaning there is both a theoretical element and a creative one. As a writer, I'm drawn to engage with some wide-ranging questions to do with literature and its role with satire and comedy, with reader engagement, and with an ethics of inclusiveness. I aim to theorise and analyse these questions by way of situating my own creative praxis. So, alongside my researching certain creative devices in satirical literature, I'm also writing a complementary satirical novel using those devices. I think it's sensible to keep the focus of this podcast on the theoretical, but you'll no doubt notice an occasional emphasis on the relationship between reader and writer. This is simply because, as well as this being English scholarship, the creative element plays a large role in my research. Okay, I think that's enough exposition for one day. Let's sink our teeth into the matter at hand. Cathartic, hilarious and always relevant. But what actually is satire? Well, as I'm sure you know, it is generally accepted to mean the use of humour, irony, exaggeration or ridicule to expose and criticise people's stupidity or vices, particularly in the context of, say, contemporary politics and or other topical issues. Since then, satire has traversed all literary forms in successive historical periods up to the contemporary, charting societal discontent, mood, and humour by igniting both vicious and gentle laughter. I think it's a fascinating genre to examine, not to mention a deeply human one. To set your own personal scene for this discussion, I'd like to ask you to consider what works of satire you're familiar with. That is to say, What do you think of when you ponder the word satire? Do any films spring to mind? TV shows? Books? Can you think of any examples that you've really enjoyed? If I asked my parents that question, they'd point in the direction of Monty Python's surreal comedy, or the famously barbed humour of the TV show Spitting Image. My younger sister, on the other hand, would pull up the hit animated show Archer on Netflix, Or maybe some of the funnier articles from social media publications The Onion and The Daily MASH. With it being such a rich and varied genre spanning all sorts of media, we all have our own experiences and preferences. What's that? You want to know what my favourite satire is? (laughs) No thought required there. Terry Pratchett's Discworld novels are my absolute favourite. They are the ultimate satirical playgrounds, and if you haven't read one, I would thoroughly recommend you pop down to Waterstones at once. If asked what I found most interesting in Pratchett's satire, I'd point in the direction of his monsters. The emerging trend of optimistic storytelling these fantastical creatures demonstrate is at the heart of my interest in satire, in a more inclusive brand of the genre. And so... At last, we have arrived at the core of the matter. I really believe there is great potential in examining contemporary satire through its monsters. The more inclusive tone of the works in which they feature is very telling of changing sensitivities, charting a trend into more empathetic storytelling. While it has recently become a bit of a contemporary buzzword, I will say I have found that the term inclusive Is helpfully quite broad. I should also state at the outset that by inclusive satire, I refer to satire that does not exclude or other, but instead seeks to humanise, empathetically connecting reader with character, rather than simply delivering cynical blows in order to make a point. Now, stick with me on this because I think I can show you that examining creative methods of creating this kind of satire. Is worthwhile on a human level. Okay now before I continue we must acknowledge that exploring the potential of this more inclusive satire as I plan to here, so examining that more reflective inward-looking approach, might seem a paradoxical contribution to formal criticism of the genre. After all it'd be easy to argue that the tone readers would expect from the genre would be more combative with outright mockery designed to make the targets look monstrous. Depending on the target, such works have the potential to be very insightful and entertaining, and can be morally instructive, without going to the trouble of acknowledging the diverse reader. So, why explore methods of making satire more inclusive? What's the point? First, let me make clear that devices of more inclusive satire as I've defined it are not new in the genre. Horatian satire was written in ancient Greece, aimed at gently ridiculing the dominant philosophical beliefs of ancient Rome. It followed a model of mildly ridiculing the universal follies of people. Likewise, Alexander Pope is considered a satirist who, in his own words, heals with morals what he hurts with wit. By targeting common human follies, both of these examples include, even as they single out, a delicate balance between social and individual criticism which maintains an amiable reader-writer relationship through laughter. Laughter at characters who are the subject of mockery and at themselves for behaving in those same ways. So clearly inclusive devices are already successful in satirical literature, at least historically. So why examine new methods for modern texts? Well. The ways in which these historical examples of satire use these devices are difficult to translate to the modern day because they arguably only work within their own contexts. Both emerged from societies where only one set of accepted societal norms existed for satirists to examine and ridicule. For Horace, it was ancient Rome, and for Pope, the Augustan era. Satirists' writing with the aim of inclusion today in a complicated age characterised by the postmodern, are confronted with a far more difficult task. What's the postmodern? Well, the postmodern period has been identified as a pretty complex time to be alive. There are now many socially acceptable ways of living, rather than just one sanctioned by church and state. That means today's satirists have not been gifted with the singular context Horace enjoyed. So that is to say, no universal set of social binaries exists to satirise in this, our current cultural moment. Therefore, satire today must account for the many acceptable ways of living. I'm sure you'll agree, this is the democratisation modern satire needs in order to have the significant impact the genre necessitates. So it's desirable. Even financially lucrative for satirists to explore inclusive devices, to account for the other. Speaking of which, now I would like you to picture a monster. What do you see? An ugly, drooling, evil creature, perhaps. Does your monster kill? It probably invades villages. Maybe even carries off the occasional young woman. Then again, perhaps you've thought beyond popular culture. Perhaps when you think of a monster, you actually see an ever-evolving definition. A way in which to, say, chart a genre, perhaps? If so, welcome to the club. I personally feel quite comfortable asserting that looking at monsters can help us chart a genre's evolution. Why is this? Well, I'll take you through my two favourite reasons. First, the study of monsters in general is broad and easily translatable as the presence of monsters in stories is a cross-cultural phenomenon from the historical to the present. Every culture has their examples, legends carried forward into our time. Old English travel writings describe alien lands populated by terrifying monsters, where the twisted faces of men glared out of their torsos. The monstrous serpentine Grutslang is recorded in the mythology of the Zulu clan of South Africa, and Maori myth tells us of the Tanua, simultaneous guardians and predators of Polynesian oral legend. In short, monsters are alive and well wherever you look. Their history has a democratic feel that I really enjoy. Another reason is revealed in the etymology of monstrosity, the meaning behind the word monster. It is accepted to have derived from Latin, from a word meaning to demonstrate, and also to warn. As Natalie Lawrence details, monsters reveal, portend, show, and make evident, often uncomfortably so. Though the modern Gothic monster and the medieval equivalent may seem unrelated, both have acted as important social tools. Monsters play a complex role within society, and are demonstrative of the context and tensions of the cultural moment from which they sprang, and their role can take on different coding depending on which cultural anxieties each given monster represents. Examples include marriage, technology, racial integration and communism. In short, in charting the movements and attitudes of society, monsters in literature, chart the genres that develop alongside them. Not a bad manner of measurement, right? So what kinds of insights can examining literary monsters reveal? While it's not a work of satire, I would advise you to go and take a look at del Toro's recent film, The Shape of Water. It's an excellent example of how today's monsters are treated as empathetic representations of the outsider in society rather than as the invading entity. Video essayist Lindsay Ellis summarises the portrayal of the Shape of Water's fish monster as follows. She says, It is relevant that the monster of del Toro's romance does not transform, either physically or internally. Del Toro was more interested in the empathy being there from the outset, and the creature being accepted for who and what he is without having to change and that is reflective of changing sensitivities. People are more interested in relating to the monster's pain than in hunting down and killing him, or sometimes her. With that statement in mind, I don't think it's far-fetched to suggest that most people see themselves in monsters. After all, are we not, much like Frankenstein's creature, intellectually curious and held together by a thread? Okay, so now that the monsters are sitting comfortably, let's bring satire back into the room. Why should one consider examining literary monsters when discussing satire's evolution in particular? First, we must ask how monsters and satire interlink. Luckily for us, this is actually quite an easy task. As we've established, satire often criticises the very societal fixations and anxieties monsters embody. Could there be a better tool through which to explore the evolution of genre? So, too, does the more inclusive satire complement the idea of the monster. Inclusion remains an important social and cultural aspiration that has not been ignored by English scholarship. Shelley's famous argument in his 1891 publication, The Defence of Poetry, is optimistic about literature's role in introducing and maintaining this form of morality. He wrote, a man, to be greatly good, must imagine intensely and comprehensively. He must put himself in the place of another and of many others. The pains and pleasures of his species must become his own. As far as satire is concerned, I would build upon Shelley's statement further and assert that contemporary satirists in particular must be able to stand in the shoes of the quote unquote, other. In this case, the so-called monsters. This is because satire is traditionally thought of as a literary mode with a moral purpose. And I say inclusion is a moral good. I don't mind making this assumption. If the creators of Shrek can do it, so can we. There are so many examples of this satirical literature we could explore. Such as Robert Asprin's Myth Adventures in which the long-suffering wizard is a green scaly demon, or Tom Holtz an orc on the wild side, in which all the Goblin King wants is peace and quiet. However, my favourite example of empathetic storytelling being catalyzed through monsters in satire is, as I said earlier, Terry Pratchett's Discworld. A monster is always the embodiment of some kind of anxiety. But the fate of the monster depends on the anxiety and what angle it's approached from. And of course, what moral, the culture and the storyteller wants to push. Pratchett's monsters are written as being deliberately reactive to long-since established models of the monstrous, parodying and satirising archetypes established in texts of the past. Traditionally in monster studies, Monsters in literature present an inherent instability of identity, undefined and uncontained in binary categories. It is their ability to slide between existing cultural, physical and social categories that makes them dangerous and therefore fascinating, as stated by Halberstam. Pratchett's approach to characterising his monsters is a challenge to this traditional idea that to be uncategorized is also to be dangerous, very reflective, in my opinion, of those changing sensitivities mentioned earlier. You only need to pick up one of his books to see that Pratchett's characterisation of fantasy's great boogeymen, his vampires, trolls, golems and witches, are not Cohen's difference-made flesh at all. Pratchett puts huge effort into reinforcing his message stories cannot be allowed to dictate roles to people. The vampires drink coffee, trolls are police constables, golems are a unionised workforce, and the tea-drinking witches? Well, they are more often than not the most effective defence against many invading evils. These satirical characterisations of the inhuman are ironically a powerfully humanising force, an invitation to personhood, irrespective of whether the focus fulfills what is categorised as normative. Pratchett's satire is so much the kind of satire I am interested in. The empathetic kind that holds as self evident that no one exists outside the moral world. A kind which deeply rejects a reality where the world is divided into us, those who merit ethical treatment, and them the others who fall outside the tenets of morality. If satire is a literary mode with a moral purpose, the Discworld's monsters are that moral core made manifest. And thus we have, you and I, observed one way in which satire has evolved. How through monsters, the genre is aligning its moral purpose with modern sensitivities. How... Through the satirical devices of verbal irony, parody, understatement, and overstatement, the monsters become us. How there is no other? Not anymore. To take an optimistic view of people is to stand up against the hydra of cynicism, one of the most powerful monsters of our day. As Rutger Bregman says, For every misanthropic argument you deflate, two more will pop up in its place. It's true, the prophets of doom and gloom can seem to predict anything they want and have it come true, whereas the reasons for hope can seem somewhat provisional. But I don't mind being called naive. After all, what's naive today may be common sense tomorrow.
0: Sarah thank you so much for coming on to the podcast I'm so excited to get to speak with you about your work and also so so with you on being a staunch optimist um, although I have to admit it's been pretty difficult to keep that approach with everything going on right now just as you said at the start of your episode um, when often kind of news and political headlines have felt like satires of themselves even and that's why I think it's so helpful to centre terms like inclusivity and empathy here I'd love to know a little bit more about how you arrived at this point and a bit about your creative and academic practice. How did you come to working on inclusive satire in this way? Was it through Discworld first? Was it through your own creative writing or was it elsewhere? Or was it a mixture of all of these?
1: I'd love to say that I started looking at this because I'm a fantastic human being and (laughs) no, no, I'm, I'm kidding. Um, I, I found that, um, I. Because we arrive at what we we like by what we read, don't we? So I found I really enjoyed the more optimistic, as you say, inclusive narratives. Did I start, did it start with Discworld? You know, I have no idea. It could have started as early as five years old with, you know, the happily ever afters and, you know, the colourful picture books from the school library. Um, Discworld resonates very deeply with me, I would say. It's... They are they're all intensely, deeply human narratives, as I said before, in spite of, you know, the inhuman. Mm. When we first met over the summer at a
0: conference um I remember you telling me about this world I remember being very embarrassed not having read one and I'm still very embarrassed (laughs) not to have read one yet and um, re-listening to recording and thinking all about this and thinking about Pratchett's representation of monsters and satire as I'm heading to a bookshop kind of immediately after this I think
1: to try and do that (laughs) mission accomplished (laughs) I've been um I've been turning a lot of my sign friends onto him as well because he's pratchett's very um he was very technologically savvy loved the loved um physics he talked about l space you know that the disc world is flying through space as we speak um on the back of a turtle so yeah it's for everyone so an easy pitch absolutely absolutely if you like reading you'll love him fantastic
0: i'd love to hear a little bit more about your own practice based elements of the phd and of your writing would you mind telling me a bit more about the
1: satirical novel you're working on mm. it's it's so much fun for me at the moment i think it might be illegal <laughs> i've been um <laughs> been going over the first twenty thousand words and um, then i have to so the first six chapters or so of this story that the the premise is um it's very goofy which i love um of science fiction setting with fantasi- fantastical characters so or, orcs in space basically and I've just loved fleshing out the characters and the worlds and the satire has been coming naturally lately and, and as I'm sure you'll appreciate there's been a lot of um, material to choose from as of late um, I think I think fascination with it began with Brexit for me sort of um Closing off of borders—that very inward-looking, selfish way of thinking—and how do you engage with that in your fiction? We basically have a planet Brexit. That's something for the blurb, I think. Planet (laughs) Brexit. What could possibly go wrong? (laughs) And how do monsters
0: feature, or do monsters feature? I know you said orcs in space. How how do they feature Mm -hmm. in
1: that in that world? In all sorts of ways. We've got orcs, trolls. Uh, golems uh, they range from protagonists antagonists side characters all mixed in there with with humans and i'm
0: interested to hear do you engage with them in the same way that you describe pratchett engaging with his
1: monsters i'm attempting to do it in my own way it was one thing my supervisor said was okay we talk a lot you talk a lot about what pratchett does and what his aim is but of course you can't do what exactly what pratchett does because you are not Pratchett, you are Sarah. <laughs> you need to do it in your own way. Um, so I'd say there's definite Pratchett flavour to what I'm doing. Like I can't help that. I just, I love the style. Mm. It's become very ingrained in in what I've been producing, but it's definitely my own stuff. I'm not trying to be Pratchett, or maybe uh, maybe a little bit in the first draft, um, just to get things <laughs> moving. But the ed- during the editing process, that's when my, my voice comes to life. That's so exciting and such good advice from your supervisor as well. I think we can all take a little bit of that away, I'm sure.
0: I'm fascinated by the way that you mentioned situating your own creative praxis within your doctoral research. Is it a challenge? How does it work? And how have you found it? What's been your experience at balancing that?
1: As I think um, most practice-based researchers will agree, we've got a chicken and egg situation you know what comes first for me i had a very basic idea for both sort of what i was interested in researching i knew it was going to be satire from the beginning um but um to h- how was i going to focus down what was th- what was i most interested in when it came to satire mm. that was something i hadn't figured out so in the end i thought god i'll just write i'll write the book i'm gonna write the novel first and then And then i'll look at that go okay what have i clearly focused on here oh you know sort of halloween monster thing going on here and then sort of thought ah that's definitely something pratchett does that's where his moral center is focused in what it means to be human what it means to be a person and i think many would disagree say actually i'm far more comfortable with the with the critical commentary coming coming to life or coming to form first but for me the creative has to be there in order for me to write about it. But as I say, it's personal preference. So it sounds so exciting the way that monsters feature in your satirical
0: novel. Thinking of the critical aspect of it, how do, how do they feature and how does criticism around monsters feature in your critical thesis side of things? Is it, are you imagining kind of a chapter dedicated to this? Is it something that stretches throughout the whole thesis? Are there any other
1: modes of inclusive satire that you're wanting to interrogate? I'd say uh, it's definitely running throughout. I'll be interrogating my own characterization versus Pratchett's and others. Um, I'm not sure whether I'll, you know, dip into um, Douglas Adams with, this, with *Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy*, you know, *Restaurant at the End of the Universe*, that sort of thing, because that that's so rich. Definitely not optimistic. Adam Adams definitely leans towards pessimism <laughs> when it comes to humanity, and which can be which can be quite a tonic in in difficult times but i'm not sure that's precisely what i'm interested in as far as this thesis goes but yes i'll be i'll be looking at linguistic choices i've made characterization choices i've made even setting you know where where have i put these monsters sort of interrogate why or how that serves the narrative how that does it dilute the satire or not does it help the satire that sounds so exciting and yes i'd love to hear more about the setting why why space why not <laughs> no, no honestly i when I was trying to decide what to write, I was swinging between science. Should I do science fiction or should I do fantasy? And I love both for for different reasons. you know, space opera is excellent, obviously, high fantasy, Lord of the Rings love it, and then I thought, well, this is satire, so I could definitely blend genre here, so why do i why do I have to choose? So in the end, I just didn't choose i Smashed them together for better or worse. And what's your experience been like merging those two? Fusing genre, yeah. I think it's been um, genre blending's become very popular. Now um, you see twisted tales a lot of the time where um, people are experimenting with um, convention. So I've, ha- I've found a lot of reading I could do. There's a lot of um, a lot of texts out there that inspire. it's it's something you have to be aware of like have I done too much fantasy here do I need to throw in a spaceship (laughs) (laughs) but yeah so far so far so good
0: I'm picturing do I need to uh, throw in a spaceship and a little post-it note on on your desk
1: spaceship here do we need a magic sword has there been too many lasers
0: The magic sword to laser ratio, that sounds brilliant.
1: Oh, that's a good
0: one. I'm going to make a note of that. <laughs> Satire seems the perfect way to really go about blending those two. Are there? Mm. You said there's lots of reading that you're doing, lots of examples now. Have, have you got any
1: favourites that look to blend those genres? Science fiction and fantasy. <gasps> Trying to think. I mean, Pratchett kind of does it. Just uh, This has just occurred to me now, but um, World of Warcraft does it as well um obviously that's not that's a i mean world of warcraft is full of literature you know all all games on of that scale are they've incorporated spaceships and species um coming to world of warcraft which up to that point had been sort of or at least to me came across as hard fantasy for the most part and suddenly there's these aliens and and it works it works it's it doesn't detract from the narrative at all and again so many monsters in in that world as well yes world of warcraft's a very good example of humanizing the inhuman because you can play as the quote unquote monsters and there are there are no baddies between these two factions you know humans versus orcs you know who would you who would you rather be you could be you can be either you can play as anyone find that
0: uh, so interesting the way you speak about the connection between reader and character and sounds like it is at the forefront of your own writing practice i can imagine that might be quite intimidating i don't I, I get very scared thinking about the reader reading my own thesis writing how do you how do you imagine the reader engaging with your characters as you're writing
1: in the very early stages of writing the reader is me i write for myself and no one else <laughs> what was it Stephen King said? I think he said, right with the door closed, edit with the door open so the, sort of the I think the initial construction of the narrative you should be concerned with yourself and what you think inclusion is, otherwise you'll get nothing done or what you get done will be so riddled with anxiety <laughs> that um you know it, it will be no good or you won't be you won't be exploring anything properly you won't be pushing boundaries or experimenting and that's what you need for good writing is to try things and not be too worried about how they turn out because it's the first draft you know and you're just trying to get the bare bones down but thinking about the diver you know the incredibly diverse reader because everyone reads you know, young old all genders and see you're terrifying me now and i'm thinking about it <laughs> I was just thinking,
0: I, I'm feeling quite inspired here. You talk about that. I feel like I've been acted the opposite on you. <laughs> I'm so sorry.
1: <laughs> but fear f- fear is not a reason not to do something. I think it's probably a good thing I'm, you know, a bit ten- sort of approaching this in a tentative kind of, tentative and attentive way. So trying not to think too much of myself as someone who's, you know, making these decisions. But trying to think about what other people how they would view what i'm writing
0: i hope you enjoyed this episode of the technicast thanks so much to sarah for joining us and to all our contributors to our themed episodes on genre We'll be back next time with a very exciting special episode about Cultivates, which is a student-organised technique Conference taking place on the 10th of November at Kew Gardens in London, which looks at cultivating knowledge, networks, well-being and discussing a range of topics including plants and interactions with nature, land use and misuse, cultivating research and spaces for practical and caring aspects of cultivation. You can still book tickets if you head over to their website, which we'll leave a link to in the show notes. After hearing about Cultivate, we'll be back with another theme where we'll be hearing from different researchers around the ideas of archives. If you'd like to be featured on the Technicast and share your work, please do get in touch. We'd love to hear from you. You can find out more about getting involved with the Technicast um, and you can see our open rolling call for papers as well as our themed calls over on our website which is linked in the show notes also. Or you can send us an email at technicaster at gmail.com to chat through any early ideas or to suggest new themes. We're also on Twitter at Technicast if you want to give us a follow over there too. If you enjoyed this episode, please do consider subscribing wherever you like to listen to your podcasts and sharing this episode as it helps spread word about the research being undertaken by our incredible guests. Thanks again to Sarah for this work on her episode, to Techni for their ongoing support, and to you for listening. Take care.